So we must say now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to transform this pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our nation. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of racial justice. I'm standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, there is Dr. King giving this I Have a Dream speech, and I said to myself, I've heard that before, you know, and so I guess his Detroit talk was a re rehearsal for what he did at the famous Lincoln Memorial March a couple of months later. That's labor journalist David L. Silla remembering the 1963 March for Freedom in Detroit, Michigan, the largest civil rights demonstration in the nation's history, up to that date. This coming Wednesday, June 7th, local labor activists, leaders, and historians will gather in Detroit to mark the 60th anniversary of that historic march. When King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which drew more than a quarter of a million people to the nation's capital. Dave, a member and officer in the Michigan Labor History Society and the longtime editor of Solidarity Magazine for the United Auto Workers, will explain how the Detroit March came to be and the key role unions played in Dr. King's historic speech. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1900. That was the day that the International Lady Garment Workers Union was formed. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. And now, my friends, let the trumpet sound, let the bells ring, let the drums roll, lay out the red carpet. Here he comes, America's beloved freedom fighter, Martin Luther King. On June 22nd, 1963, 100,000 Detroiters marched down Woodward Avenue, the main street in uh, the city, with Walter Ruther from the UAW, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and a lot of civil rights and labor leaders uh, did a one-mile-long march and ended up at a downtown arena for a rally for human rights, civil rights. And that's where Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech for the very first time. He had written it at offices in Solidarity House, the UAW headquarters in Detroit. And the auditorium, the arena was packed, and there was a real sense of joy and hope in in that meeting. And I was lucky enough to have attended it. I was a young person at the time, and a couple of months later in August, I went with bus loads of and train loads of Detroiters to Washington, D.C., and I'm standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, there is Dr. King giving this I Have a Dream speech, and I said to myself, I've heard that before, you know, and so I guess his Detroit talk was a re rehearsal for what he did at the famous Lincoln Memorial March a couple of months later. And so our Michigan Labor History Society, we have an annual meeting every June, and we decided that this is 
an appropriate anniversary to build a theme for our meeting. And so that's what we will be doing on the 7th of June at UAW Local 22 uh, at 4300 Michigan Avenue in Detroit. We have a speaker, Ken Coleman, who is a local journalist and author, and he'll be speaking to us and we will commemorate the march. What what was going on in Detroit that brought 100,000 people out in the street? I think there was a great deal of of support for the civil rights movement at that time. And I lived in a small, all-white Detroit suburb, for an example. And there was a group of people who uh, wanted to change things, who wanted to uh, integrate to the community. And we organized the Redford Township Committee for Human Relations, for Better Human Relations, and uh, built a march on the Township Hall and then the Main Street to try to encourage open housing. And uh, that was a real struggle at the time. And uh, this struggle was going on, I think, all over the metropolitan area and all over the country. Uh, when the first African-American family moved into the community, a cross was burned on their lawns. And so we had our work cut out for us. And that was 1963. And it, it built, helped build a support for the event down Woodward Avenue in Detroit. You know, when people see the the August 63 march with Dr. King, of course, labor folks noticed that Walter Ruther was in that front line yes. in D.C. with, with Dr. King. But I'm yes. seeing here that Ruther was very involved in, in the march in Detroit a, as well. The fact is that the UAW was very strongly supportive of the work that Dr. King was doing. And as I mentioned earlier, lent some office space in Solidarity House the UAW headquarters for Dr. King to write his speech that he gave at the arena in downtown Detroit. I would like to tie in a little bit about labor history in terms of the support for equal rights over the years. In 1932, you go back to 1932 when the Ford Hunger March occurred among workers who were trying to organize at Ford. It was racially integrated, one of the few movements at that time where both black and white workers banded together for justice. And while the union was organizing it for it, it really fought discrimination in many cultural areas, many sports areas. I remember reading about Dave Moore, an activist who led a picket line in a fight at one of the big bowling alleys near the Ford River Rouge plant that refused to permit Black bowlers to bowl there. And they led a picket line and a boycott, and finally the bowling alley caved in. And at that time, the American Bowling Congress was all white, refused to let black bowlers into its ranks. And the UAW pressed it very strongly, organized a rival league. And finally, the Bowling Congress had to give in and integrate it. So the, the union movement for many years in many ways helped promote an end to racial segregation and discrimination. Fascinating, Dave. So fighting for civil rights in the bowling alleys. Yes, indeed. The UAW also had a hand in organizing the, the a basketball team called the Chicago Studebakers, I believe. And it was one of the first racially integrated basketball teams in, in league basketball. You're active with the Labor History Society. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the fact that so few people, I, I don't know about in Detroit, but I think certainly outside of Detroit, this is reminding me of, I, I come from Rochester, New York, and we... Somebody piped up at a labor council meeting one day. This was like 30 years ago 
oh, there's this anniversary of this general strike in Rochester coming up. This is something that happened back in the 40s, and nobody had ever heard of a general strike in Rochester, New York. I mean, oh. it was... <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> then I had to go to the library to actually research it, and it turned out, yes, there was a general strike, and there was actually a picture of... The it was that municipal workers had struck, and there was a the leader was in jail with his dog. It was a great picture, made the front page of the paper. But it's just making me think about how 125,000 people marched down Woodward Avenue in Detroit, basically the beginning of the civil rights movement, a few weeks before Martin Luther King delivers his famous speech in Washington, D.C. And in fact, he delivers a warm up for that speech in Detroit, and everybody's heard about the 63. March, there's a plaque at the Lincoln Memorial, and very few people have heard about the one in Detroit. So if you could talk a little bit about why this is important to remember and commemorate these things, other other than just historical interest. Well, one of the things that our Michigan Labor History Society is trying to do, and exactly this really fits in, is to tell the stories of labor's commitment to social justice and economic justice over the years. And we are conducting labor history bus tours and walking tours all over the city, including the site of the civil rights demonstration, including major strikes and sit-downs. And we have probably, in the past five or six years, given them to three or four thousand people. And our goal is really to let the sons and daughters and grandchildren of the early pioneers who were 19 to 20, 21 years old when they were organizing back in the 30s, know their stories and know the stories of organizing unions for the first time in industrial plants and then building up a movement that included not just economic gains, but gains in social justice and economic justice. And that's where events like the, like the 1963 March for Freedom developed. What what does this 60-year-old march have to say to us today? Well, when we talk about labor history, it's not just a thing of the past. It's not just these stories about what went on 40 or 50 or 100 years ago, but we try to relate those stories to the struggles that are going on today. And for example, 1937, a lot of people were being evicted from their homes during the Depression. Union members would organize and go out to the homes of the evictees, and as soon as the marshals left, they would go to the curb pick up the furniture, take it back in, and put it in to the workers' homes. Okay, so here today we have a group in Detroit called the Detroit Eviction Defense, and people have been victims of, of evictions over the last several years, and Detroit Eviction Defense has organized groups to guard the homes of people who are being threatened with eviction. And one, one, one example that traces back to 1937 is how Recent, a couple of years ago, people gathered in front of the homes of a UAW member who had been who had lost his job and couldn't afford to pay his mortgage. And when the marshals came with their dump trucks to load all of the furniture in, the people who were defending it went out and picked up all these bags of leaves from their neighbors. So they had been put they had been put out for leaf collection day and filled the dump truck, the dumpsters with the leaves. There was no room for the furniture. And at the same time, the lawyer was lawyers were downtown at 36th District Court getting an injunction against that eviction. So the combination of direct action and legal action saved the family's home, and they're still in it today. 
But that's an example of how you learn from the past to confront today's struggles. And another example, we had a big rally here several years ago for the workers at, at a door and window factory that had a sit-down strike to protest the closing of their plant. We brought in a couple of veterans from the famous 1937 Flint sit-down strike at General Motors in the auto plant. And they stood on and talked to them in their 80s, and they talked about their struggle back in 37. And the young people from Republic Door and Window plant looked at them and said, we stood on your shoulders. We learned from you. So it's taking the lessons of the past and teaching young people, showing young people that you can do the same. And you can follow the same similar strategies and struggles that occurred back then. Because you go back to the 1930s and early 1940s, the people who were doing the organizing then were young. They were 21, 22, 24 years old. And so the people who are at Starbucks and the Amazon organizing today are the same age that their grandparents or great-grandparents were back then. And they take inspiration from hearing those stories. And so when we do our labor history bus tours or speaking to groups, we try to emphasize that, that you have the power now that they had that back then, and you can do the same thing. So we learn from the past. And our wow. name of our public, name of our publication is "Looking Back, Moving Forward," which Perfect. I think is an appropriate slogan. Well, Dave, we really appreciate you sharing this story of the 1963 March for Freedom in Detroit. And I'll just close. Of course, you will be receiving the Joe Hill Award at the Great Labor Arts Exchange in a couple of weeks. And so I will look forward to seeing you and interviewing you then about that. But I really appreciate your time today. Okay, Chris, take care. Thank you very much. Here's the end of Martin Luther King's speech in Detroit on June 22, 1963. The first rough draft of history, if you like. And so I go back to the South, not in despair. I go back to the South, not with a feeling that we are caught in a dark dungeon that will never lead to a way out. I go back believing that the new day is coming. And so this afternoon, I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day, right down in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to live together as brothers. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day little white children and little Negro children will be able to join hands as brothers and sisters. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day, men will no longer burn down houses in the church of God simply because people want to be free. I have a dream this afternoon that there will be a day that we will, not long, we will no longer face the atrocities that Emmett Till had to face or Medgar Evers had to face, but that all men can live with dignity. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children, that my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon that one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house 
or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them, and they will be able to get a job. Yes, I have a dream this afternoon. One day in this land, the words of Amos will become real. And justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream this evening that one day we will recognize the words of Jefferson that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have a dream this afternoon. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day with this faith. I will go out and carve a tunnel of hope through the mountain of despair with this faith. I will go out with you and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. With this faith, we will be able to achieve this new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing with the Negroes in the spiritual of all, free at last, Free at last. Thank God Almighty. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1900. That was the day that the International Lady Garment Workers Union was formed. Eleven delegates attended the founding meeting. They represented the major garment-making cities of the East Coast. Most of the membership of these unions were Jewish immigrant women. Many were socialists or had been involved with trade unions in their home countries before making their move to the United States. They brought this union culture with them to the garment industry. Herman Grossman was elected the first president of the union. Men held all of the leadership positions of the ILGWU during its early years. This opened the the union to criticism that the leadership did not represent the membership. Despite this criticism, the union grew quickly. Only four locals joined the ILGWU at its first meeting. But soon locals were chartered beyond the East Coast in cities such as Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, and San Francisco. From its inception, the ILGWU became a leading advocate for what is known as social unionism. This type of unionism looks beyond workplace issues to a broader agenda of social welfare. This included holding labor history classes, English language classes, and performance art. In 1913, the union opened a health center for its members in New York City. The ILGWU became an important progressive force in the labor movement. In 1975, they launched the Look for the Union Label ad campaign, including this commercial from 1981. Look for the union label when you are body, as more and more garment work moved out of the United States, membership fell. In 1995, the ILGWU joined with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union to form Unite. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show.
That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today was produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. <laughs>